Today, we look into the strange story of how John Grundhofer, a well-known and successful businessman, was kidnapped. Join us as we figure out what happened in this intriguing case and look into the strange circumstances, possible reasons, and the figure at the heart of it all. Get ready to go on a trip into a world where truth and lies can be hard to tell apart, leaving us to wonder what happened to old Jackie boy. A kidnapping or... Welcome to Capers and Cocktails, a true crime podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously and gives you something to enjoy while you listen. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you're enjoying one of our themed cocktails, ensure you're of legal drinking age and have fun, but drink responsibly. Today's caper takes place in Minneapolis, so I had to find a Minneapolis cocktail, and boy did I. The bootlegger is one of the most popular drinks in Minnesota, especially in Minneapolis. During the time of Prohibition, illegal activities and speakeasies grew there, as they did in many other places in the United States. We've talked about this. The city became a center for illegal alcohol sales because it had secret distilleries, hidden bars, and a booming black market. The bootleg cocktail is a great example of how creative and well-made modern mixology is. It takes ideas from the past to make a new way to drink in the present. It's a reminder of the city's past during Prohibition and the fact that classic cocktails still have a lot of fans in the lively Minneapolis cocktail scene. Be careful, though, because the mixers in this drink are meant to hide the taste of the booze, and they really do. To make this cocktail, you have to do a little prep work. You're going to take two 12-ounce cans of frozen limeade concentrate and frozen lemonade concentrate and add that to one cup of packed mint. Put all three ingredients into a blender, no water. Blend that until the mint is well incorporated and finely chopped. Then take your mix and refrigerate it for at least two hours to let those flavors infuse well. I, I think I did it for at least a couple of days. To make the drink, take three parts of the bootleg mix and add it to a glass with ice. Add one and a half parts vodka and stir. Then top with club soda and garnish with a sprig of mint. For the mocktail, you'll take that same bootleg mix you blended up and add three parts of it and one part apple cider vinegar to your cocktail glass. Stir, then top with club soda and a sprig of mint. John Francis Grundhofer, who went by Jack, was the oldest of three children born to Father John and Mother Laura. He was born on New Year's Day 1939 in Los Angeles. He had a younger brother named Jerry and a younger sister named Joanne. Dad John was a bartender who often worked two or three jobs at once to make ends meet. His mom was a housekeeper. Jack's daughter would later say, Dad always attributed his success to education and the opportunities he had and the sacrifices his parents made to make sure he had a high-level education. Jack himself was gifted from a young age. At 12 years old, he passed the entrance exams for the prestigious Loyola High School, a Jesuit school. Enrolling at Loyola meant a one-hour each-way streetcar commute every single day. About his early schooling, Jack would say, quote, I didn't have great social skills, but I studied. I learned to give speeches, end quote. A resounding endorsement of Loyola High School, I gotta say. Also, at age 12, Jack took on a daily paper route to earn extra money to help his parents pay the bills. He would also work as a department store stalker in high school. Jack was not afraid of hard work, it seems. Jack attended Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles on a baseball scholarship and earned a degree in economics in 1960. 
After graduation, he went to work for Union Bank in Los Angeles, but he also moonlighted as a repo man, tracking down people who were behind in their car payments. At one point during his work for that side hustle, someone who was delinquent in his car payments shot at him as he tried to repossess their car. Attending night classes, Jack earned an MBA from USC in 1964. He married his first wife, Linda, and they had two daughters together, Karen and Catherine. Then, for a while, his career was working his way up the chain at regional and then national banks. By the late 1980s, he was a top officer at Wells Fargo Bank. Then he was hired to be the chief executive at the Minneapolis-based First Bank System, Inc. in 1990, where he gained a reputation as Jack the Ripper for his, well, dramatic or draconian methods in cutting costs for the bank. He would tell the Wall Street Journal, quote, I'll do whatever I have to do, however draconian. Shareholders are looking for someone to protect their livelihood. You have to manage tough to survive, end quote. Pretty much immediately after he started at First Bank, he eliminated about 20% of the workforce. Along with axing, get it, thousands of jobs, he cut perks for remaining employees, including golf club memberships, company cars, and get this, office plants. Definitely a way to win friends and influence people, if you ask me. Meanwhile, Jack himself was not hurting for money. In fact, he earned over $1.5 million in cash and other compensation in 1990 alone. Trickle down my arse. He bought two ranches in Montana and did a fair amount of bird hunting and fly fishing. He gave away some money, too, to the Palm Springs International Film Festival, some medical facilities in Montana and California, and a California zoo. Hmm. In September of 1990, at 3.30 a.m., Jack was awakened with a shocking phone call. His 22-year-old daughter, Karen, had been shot seven times by a deranged gunman at Henry's Public House and Grill, a restaurant and bar near her university. She had been having drinks at the bar when shots rang out. A friend dragged her from the room and kept pressure on the wounds until paramedics could arrive. And thankfully, she was able to do that for Karen because the gunman would engage in a seven-hour siege with something like 30 hostages. One hostage was killed and several others were sexually assaulted before the gunman was shot and killed himself by police. Jack would tell reporters Karen, quote, was very lucky. The good Lord was watching over her, end quote. She would recover and that would be only the first of the string of bad luck to happen to the Grundhofer family in the fall of 1990. About six weeks after the shooting on Monday, November 19, 1990, 51-year-old Jack pulled into the First Bank parking garage, apparently named the Pillsbury Center parking garage in Minneapolis, ready for a regular Monday workday. When he parked his car around 8 a.m., undoubtedly in a spot reserved just for him, a white man somewhere between 50 to 60 years old approached Jack. This stranger was heavy set and was somewhere around six feet tall. He had brown, graying hair and a ruddy complexion, whatever that means. He wore thick glasses with a dark rim, a brown top coat, a blue brown three piece suit, a white shirt, and a tie. He called himself Carl and carried a black leather satchel. And he was also carrying a knife and a pistol. FBI spokesperson Byron Jiggler would say, quote, he was immaculately dressed. He was articulate and educated, and his demeanor seemed to imply he was not an experienced criminal. It was obvious this was something new to him, end quote. 
John started to struggle with Carl all the way to the ground, and this got the attention of an eyewitness. The eyewitness came towards the two, but they suddenly stood up and acted as if they knew each other. Carl pointed a gun at the eyewitness, and he ran away. This well-dressed kidnapping amateur, well, everybody's got to start somewhere, right, fastened to Jack's wrist what he said was a bomb and ordered Jack to start driving. He ordered Jack to drive towards Wisconsin. Somewhere along the road, the gunman ordered Jack to use one of those really cool bag phones that were top-of-the-line technology in 1990 to read a ransom note to a secretary at the bank. Not cool, kidnapping gunman, to make somebody talk on the phone and drive. Really unsafe, bro. (laughs) Reports were that the ransom requested was $3 million, or $6.8 million today, but the FBI would not confirm or deny that figure. If it's true, it would be the largest requested ransom in Minnesota history, at least at the time. Carl also requested some strange bill sizes, including $1,000 bills, giving officials more evidence this was not a professional kidnapper. Most people can't really, you know, use a $1,000 bill at the grocery store, or at least not the grocery stores that I go to. Meanwhile, in the parking garage, another passerby noticed a piece of paper on the ground, which looked to be a cheat sheet written to remind the kidnapper of exactly what to say to Jack. More evidence that Carl, or whomever he was, was not exactly a kidnapping pro. Once Jack and Carl had barely crossed over the Wisconsin border, for some unexplained reason, the kidnapper forced Jack to pull over in a wooded area near either Hudson or Holton, Wisconsin, reports Ferry. And some accounts would say that Carl tied Jack up in a sleeping bag that had been staged at the bottom of a wooden embankment, while others say the kidnapper just tied him up to a tree and left him on the side of the road. Regardless, the gunman left, saying that he would be back. But as soon as he drove off, Jack took about 20 minutes or so to untie himself. He made his way to a nearby farmhouse where he was able to call and get some help. It was 1025 a.m. and his ordeal was over just two and a half hours after it began. The FBI would say that they thought this crime was well planned and precisely timed. FBI guy Byron would also say about the criminal, quote, it's evident that he was stalking Mr. Grundhofer and knew his movements. It didn't happen by chance. Another FBI guy, Jeff Jamar, would say the kidnapper was, quote, well prepared, well planned. I believe he stalked him, knew who he was after, end quote. The FBI speculated there may have been at least one other co-conspirator. They released a physical description of the suspect and began a massive search to find the suspect and Jack's missing car. Jack would say through a spokesperson, quote, I have no idea why this took place. Right now I have a bank to run and that's what I intend to do, end quote. Jack was a member of what they deemed the silent generation. And if by silent they mean let's not talk about our feelings, then Jack had that part down. His daughter Karen was a little more forthcoming, saying, quote, he's obviously just very relieved and trying to relax. We both can't believe what's happened to us. These two situations are almost like TV movies come true, end quote. Yeah, that actually, that sounds about right. Just a few days after the incident, they did end up finding Jack's car at the very top of the Metropolitan Mount Sinai Center parking garage, just three blocks from the site of the kidnapping. Evidently, the car had traveled something like 350 meandering miles from Minneapolis to Wisconsin and back to Minneapolis again, having also been spotted in south-central Sherburne, Minnesota at one point as well. 
FBI guy Byron would speculate about the suspect, saying, quote, We are obviously dealing with a person who had an urgent need to return to the Twin Cities for some reason, end quote. They dusted the car for prints and looked at as much forensics as they could in 1990. You know. They also looked at surveillance footage to try and find the suspect. But after all that, nothing. In early February 1991, Jack was shown a lineup of possible suspects, but law enforcement wouldn't even reveal if he'd identified anyone in the lineup. And again, nothing. There were suspects throughout the investigation, including, I don't know, 2,000 disgruntled former employees, as well as rejected borrowers from the various banks that Jack had worked for. Another theory, kind of strange, was that the kidnapping was linked to a drug protest group that was frustrated with the role banks had been playing in laundering drug money. The organization in question was called Mothers Against Drugs. I can only imagine the headline. Angry Moms Kidnap Bank Executive Over Dirty Drug Money. <laughs> Regardless, the FBI found no evidence to support the Mad Moms Club. After the release of a composite sketch, a maintenance worker named John Henderson was named as a possible suspect after at least two people called a hotline claiming he was the suspect, based on the, on the image, I guess. He worked 30 miles outside of Minneapolis and had no connections to Jack. John would even eventually go under a grand jury investigation, but no charges were ever filed against him. At the time of the incident, the FBI and the Minneapolis Police Department said they had no reason to doubt the kidnapping account. And indeed, there were several kidnappings of high-up executives in the late 1980s and early 1990s. This included an executive for the Exxon Corps, a Texaco exec, a Coca-Cola plant director in Brazil, and a formal ware manufacturer who survived 12 days in a barrel-shaped pit near the Hudson River. It appeared to be enough of a trend that several newspapers reported it as such. Most of these folks had a logical ransom demand, however, and most of these folks were released after the ransom was paid. They followed, you know, the kidnapping handbook, playbook, I don't know. In the last few years, there have been some alternative theories about what happened to Jack Grundhofer on that November day in 1990. This case has some real distinct differences from that typical playbook. Even by Jack's own testimony, the kidnapper was a bit bungling. A cheat sheet left on the ground, no mask or real disguise, dressed in a full three-piece suit, taking him to a random place in the woods and half-heartedly tying him up and just disappearing, returning the car to basically the same place it was taken from, unharmed and ready to be used again by Jack? And what about that eyewitness in the parking garage who said that the two stood up and looked like they knew each other? The running theory is that Jack, hot off the bad press, was needing something to help make him a little more human to the public. Apparently, his daughter getting shot wasn't enough press to garner sympathy. Or maybe it was, and he'd gotten a bit of the taste of it, and he wanted more sympathy instead of hatred thrown his way. He hatched a plot and hired someone to do the dirty work of pretending to kidnap him, and he was able to throw authorities off with his story, so that guy also managed to avoid facing any consequences from the law. 
Okay, so I actually think this is an interesting theory. Not often do you have a kidnapper that immediately names himself, is dressed like he's going to the opera, and a victim who's barely gone a few hours before being able to come back to town safe and sound. No ransom ever needed to be paid, no one was injured, and nothing was damaged. And there's a criminal who's never even been close to being caught. I don't know, maybe I'm convincing myself that there's something here, but I think there could be something here. What do y'all think? Are we all just conspiracy theory to death or, or is there something to this? A truly victimless crime that gets the heat off the multi-million dollar bank executive who had just laid off thousands of people? I think he could have done it to himself. No one was ever found or charged in the kidnapping of Jack Grundhofer. Despite his controversial nickname, Jack was able to stabilize the bank and oversaw several mergers, including one with U.S. Bank near the end of his career. In 2011, Jack married Patty Meyer, who had served as a bank consultant. John Francis Grundhofer died on January 24, 2021 at his home in Indian Wells, California. He was 82 years old. The cause of death was pneumonia unrelated to COVID-19. He was survived by his wife, his daughters, his brother and sister, and five grandchildren. Patty would die a year and a half later at age 54. First Bank Systems Board would later pass a security resolution that provided for protection of its executives. Jack himself, obviously, never said that he had kidnapped, well, himself. And I found no evidence that he even addressed or knew about the rumors. He would say later about the kidnapping, quote, if you are a high profile person, one way or another, you have to deal with the fact that it could happen to you. People don't like to talk about it, but it's a horrible thing. You never forget it, end quote. And in 1996, he told a Minneapolis newspaper that he believed the kidnapping made him a better person. He said, quote, my family, my kids become more important. You have to have an ability to understand your heart. You need balance. You need to be tough but there's nothing wrong with a good cry, end quote. Thanks for hanging out with me. I suppose no matter what happened in this case, the most important thing is that everyone turned out to be okay. Next week, a tale that I, for one, had never heard of, even though I had definitely 100% heard of the victim. And get this, he's a Texan. Maybe you don't care about that. But if you want to learn about this weird crime and hear my reveal of who the victim is that you've definitely heard of, then you're going to have to tune in next week. The drink is a fun one, too. The Tequila Time Machine. I have no idea where it gets its name from, but it tastes like I'd like to have a time machine to go back in time and just drink it over and over again. Oh, that was weak. Anyway, if you haven't been to Twitter lately, or whatever they're calling it these days, I highly encourage you to go there. Not to support Elon Musk, but to support me. Anyway, go to Twitter and send me some hate comments. I'll see you next week. And remember, there are always alternatives to kidnapping yourself. <laughs>